And we are live. This is Dark Journalists. Uh, it's great to be here with all of you. It's a tremendous crowd already. Of course, I'm joined by the lovely Olivia. Hi, everybody. And we have a very special guest, which is Dr. Joseph Farrell. <laughs> Take two. <laughs> <laughs> Take two. <laughs> Uh, as everyone knows who tuned in last night, of course, the previous two interviews that I did with Dr. Farrell were removed. And Joseph, they were removed. I want to give you the official explanation <laughs> because supposedly we were impersonating a historical event. <laughs> this is new. Yeah, this is very new. <laughs> a little different. <laughs> We've arrived. <laughs> When do we get our stars at Grumman's Chinese Theater? You know, I mean, it's just—it's uh, just absurd. <laughs> that happened real early, and it happened on even different platforms. Uh, so there was something, and it was with both videos, not just uh, the one video. But the first one that went down was the Mars Elite video. And I thought that was interesting, where we really went deep into the Mars aspects, the big push around Mars that we're seeing uh, from Elon Musk and others. And it really is interesting that it's Mars. You know, he had a quote re recently where he said, I'm going to save the light of consciousness by getting us to Mars. Oh, <laughs> That's pretty esoteric, my friend. Yeah, it is. <laughs> kind of disturbing, too. <laughs> I should like to have Elon as the father of civilization. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> no. Joseph, I'm going to go right in here with SpaceX and Otrok. Mm -hmm. And um, the bizarre similarity behind these rockets and this rocket program they developed in the late 80s mm -hmm. and what Musk uh, eventually wound up launching himself with SpaceX and some of the other weird things there. But what was OTROG and who are the people behind it? Well, OTROG stands for Orbital Rakete und uh, Transport und Gesellschaft. Uh, it's, a, it's obviously a German firm. And they set up in the mid-1980s, and all of this incidentally was brought out by Mikhail Gorbachev. Right. We wouldn't have even heard of Otrog or this compound in the Congo, which is kind of like the West German version of Area 51, right. if it had not been for Mikhail Gorbachev accusing West Germany of running this compound, building cruise missiles, bio-warfare capabilities, and everything else. But the firm itself was, was a firm that was designed to create booster rockets for very cheap launches. So if you go look at the pictures of some of those OTROG rockets, they're modular. Right. So you just fasten however many rockets you need to a central core to boost whatever payload you need. So that's that's OTROG. Interestingly enough, one of the people on the board of OTROG was Dr. Kurt Davis, whom you know we've talked about many times. Yes. Who was this... Um, Nazi rocket scientist, so to speak, that was during the Apollo moon missions, he was the head of the flight planning at Cape Canaveral. So this is the guy that's in charge of the moon launches. Uh, Dr. Davis was also very peculiarly after shortly before he retired, he was placed in head as the head of NASA's UFO Bureau. 
Right. And then he retires and goes on the board to Otrug. Uh, if you know my books, um, Dr. Davis was also involved in some capacity, we don't know exactly what, in uh, a project having to do with the Nazi bell. Uh, Kurt, Kurt Davis was not a rocket scientist. His specialty was high-voltage plasma and measurement. That's, you know, to me, a dead giveaway about the bell. Uh, he was a very close associate of, of Dr. Von Braun. So, you know, this Otrog entity, whatever it was, was, I think, certainly a part of the German deep state, you know, Black Projects world and all of that stuff, especially with someone like <laughs> Kurt Davis involved with it. Yes. And interestingly enough, you mentioned Elon Musk. Uh, if I remember correctly, Daniel, and I'm going on wobbly memory here, but about um, a year and a half ago, I think it was, someone sent me an article, and I, I couldn't verify it, so I never blogged about it. But someone sent me an article that was tying Elon Musk to Otrog somehow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, <laughs> how that yeah, works in there, I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's very suspicious. But you're right. There is a resemblance between what Otrog was up to, trying to create very cheap modular uh, launch vehicles, rockets for space, and what Elon Musk has been up to with SpaceX. So I have to wonder if if Otrog was somehow kind of a, a, a beta test of, of some cheap rocket launch capability that they've now farmed out to people like Bezos and, and Branson and Jeff Bezos and all these other people want to getting into space. Exactly. And th this is interesting because, of course, this brings in the whole secret space program aspect because we stopped going to the moon in 1972, mm -hmm. which is a great anomaly mm -hmm. uh, and a huge gap of time, 50 years to mm -hmm. next year. Um, and, you know, Pence, when he was in with Trump and they were putting things together, they said, with NASA, we're going back to the moon 2024. A couple of days ago, NASA said, hold on. Mm -hmm. The Pence plans are out. We're not going back to the moon on that date. Maybe later in the decade, we'll see. Mm -hmm. But Joseph, that got scratched. Mm -hmm. uh, so something's going on with the secret plan piece. And suddenly Mars has to be the complete dominant thing mm -hmm. as far as news coverage goes. Yeah, I find it very odd that we've had these these let's go back into space deadlines. And it, there's a pattern, as far as I can tell, Daniel. Uh, King uh, George Herbert Walker uh, Bush the first came out with that announcement. I think it was 1987 or 88. You know, we got to get back into space right away. And then Clinton's elected and that's out the window. Yeah. Then we get Bush the stupid elected, and we're, we got to get back into space, you know, by such and such a date. Then along comes Obama, and that goes out the window. Right. And then Trump gets elected, and yeah, we got to get back into space. Uh, we've got to be on the moon by 2024, and we got to be on Mars by. So and now it's out the window again with Biden in office. So I have to wonder, is this all just, you know, make-believe bipartisan theater, or is there a real tug-of-war going on here? Mm -hmm. And and during this tug-of-war, the other thing that's been appreciably noticeable, as you're very well aware, is they've been coming out with all of these 
videos of UFOs and conferences, and they're pushing the ET meme, and it's all of a sudden Mars. Yes. So, you know, what, what's going on here? I have no idea, but I, I'm very suspicious of the pattern. No question. And, um, well, so many of your books in the Giza Death Star book series are about the ancient technology and basically mm -hmm. these wars in space that took place a long time ago. The Cosmic War in particular mm -hmm. uh, goes through that. And you've said that those books were laid out in a certain order mm -hmm. as well. Um, mm -hmm. So the message for me is that it seems perhaps that there are ruins that they've discovered, mm -hmm. uh, say on Mars, for example. Mm -hmm. And you said once they discovered those ruins, something would have happened. And that would have been the deep state would have taken a look at that and said, where are all the ancient documents on Earth concerned? Right. right. That's exactly what I think happened. Um, you, you can't tell me that you know, the, the, the face on Mars photo that Viking took, the very famous face, uh, that was noticed by two NASA scientists, and they originally thought exactly what the narrative later came to be. Well, this is just a trick of light and shadow. But then they found another picture that was taken by Viking from a different sun angle and a different position, and it's still there. So it's not a trick of light and shadow. Mm. And at that point... Uh, you know, NASA starts putting out the narrative that, well, this is just a big trick of light and shadow. But they're in doing so, and, you know, Hoagland laid all of this out in, in his numerous papers and, and, and books on the subject, that at this point, NASA is, is creating a narrative that pretty much went against its own scientists who discovered the pictures. Hmm. So at, what, I'm, what I'm suggesting is at that point, they realize we have a genuine anomaly here. And that is going to require the deep state to take action and do some analysis that they're going to keep hidden from us. And I fully, firmly believe that as a part of that analysis, they're going to go back and look at ancient texts, you know, that, that Eric von Deniken, you know, people like that that were in the popular view at that time. We're talking about this idea. So they're going to do this. The other reason I think they're going to go back and, and look at ancient texts is you've got a UFO problem at the end of World War II. And they are they are interfering with our national defense bases, particularly our nuclear bases. Mm -hmm. You know, shutting down ICBMs or turning them on in the Soviet Union. You know, <laughs> take your pick. And and this is a this is a genuine national security problem that they are going to have to study and yeah. take some sort of action on. There's there's no way that they're going to ignore it, but we're not going to hear about it. So if they if they all of a sudden realize we've got the possibility of of some ruins here on Mars, then the implication is that implies a technology. And right. if you go back and look at the ancient texts, you know I. I put a lot of them in, in the book, The Cosmic War, if mm -hmm. you or Giza the Death Star um, Destroyed. If you look at those ancient texts, it's very clear, if you read them with modern eyes, that they are talking about a technology. Right. Very clear. I mean, in the Enuma Elish, you know, the so-called Babylonian creation epic, and I defy anybody to sit and read it and tell me that this is a creation epic. It's a war epic. 
right pure, pure and simple you know uh, quackademia likes to cover things up by giving it a name to make you think oh these people are just making all this up it's babylonian science fiction no it's not well if you look at it if you look at the enema elish You've got this big war between Marduk and Tiamat, and what's Tiamat fighting with? Well, she's fighting with biological weapons, mm -hmm. miscegenation, scorpion men, and you know all of this weird uh -huh. monsters that that she's cooking up in her cauldrons. Right. So, in other words, we're doing this today with with modern genetics. We're creating we're creating these chimerical creatures. So it's not surprising that that you would find it in a text related to a cosmic war, which you're going to have to have technology to fight. That's my point. Yeah. So these people are going to go back and look at these texts and, and realize that they've got a problem. And that's, I think, what's behind the scramble for Mars. They want to go out there and get that technology. Right. So uh, they're convinced that there's enough, or they probably already know at this point, that there's enough there that they can reconstruct the idea of what mm -hmm. took place. Mm -hmm. So they're taking then those ancient texts, the Epic of Gilgamesh or something of, of that nature, mm -hmm. as factual. They've, they've changed their perspective and realized, mm -hmm. oh, they're not mythical creations for academics. They are rather detailed histories. Right. They're, they're histories using language that, that the people recording them at the time had available. So you know, the idea that the idea that they're going to talk about scorpion men. Well, they they don't have a word for miscegenation, but that's what they're talking about. They're mm -hmm. talking about genetic engineering. So you kind of have to read these texts and bear in mind that you're either dealing with myth or you're dealing with people that are trying to record something very real in the language they had available. And that's what I think these people, you know, that would do this analysis actually did. And you know as well as I do, Daniel, that if you examine some of the photos coming from Mars recently, oh, yeah. they are just chock full of things that should not be there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no know. question. Yeah. Uh, and this is the kind of stuff that you've pointed out. You, you did mention that Hoagland was very early on this. Oh, yeah. Um, and one of the things that he got into were the whole complexes in Sidonia and, and that whole thing, which mm -hmm. look kind of like versions of Giza, but mm -hmm. up there. Mm -hmm. um, there were also the strange comments uh, that Buzz Aldrin made in relation to some of the moons and how they had found things there, mm -hmm. as if he couldn't kind of help himself. It spilled mm -hmm. out. So, um, and we've seen it echoed through movies like 2001 Space Odyssey and, and mm -hmm. all that kind of thing. So the idea is there, uh, it's out there in the culture as early as the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, when we look at it now, they've had years to study it in the last 50 with no public program except for, you know, Challenger shuttles and, and things of this nature, which are real fluff when you get mm -hmm. into a space program. What do you think marks the 50-year gap of space development that the public hasn't seen uh, in general, what's the kind of the core factor you think that is going on? I, I think the core factor is this this realization that that human history is not the and I, I think I mentioned this in the previous videos. Human history is not this accidental history of humanity 
being hunting, doing their hunting and gathering, and then all of a sudden quitting and deciding to invent mathematics and astrology and animal domestication and start Sumer and Egypt, you know, out, out of the clear blue, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is a narrative that never made sense to me. To be let's make honest. a geometrically perfect pyramid, everyone. Yes, let's make a perfect pyramid <laughs> out of out of copper and sand slurry and and diorite balls and you know hand sauce <laughs> <laughs> hey the mines didn't even have the wheel supposedly yeah the mines <laughs> didn't even have the wheel you know the poor things <laughs> just, just, good luck throwing those stones over yeah there. good luck throwing those stones up there. <laughs> yeah go look at chichen itza and <laughs> tell me these people didn't have the wheel <laughs> come on <laughs> But yeah, this is the problem. They they realize that that history is is uh, is not as as Quackademia would have it, or they had to invent that history real fast because you know the end of World War Three, you've got a bunch of stuff flying around the sky that's going to grab attention and make people wonder. The other thing I think that's at the core of this is the technology aspect. Once once you come to the conclusion that there was a high civilization and that it may have been interplanetary and that it fought a war and it was a terribly destructive one, uh, you know, a blown up planet right here in our solar system. Once you come to those conclusions, then you would have to be totally irrational not to want to go out and get that technology, particularly at the height of the Cold War. Yes. Because, you know, if, if those records are true and that technology existed or there may be some of it left or enough information about it that we can piece it back together, we'd better get there before the danged riskies do. Right. You know, and on and on we could go. <laughs> yes. Well, it's interesting because um, there's a CIA record that was declassified about them placing agents inside the ARE Casey Foundation. Mm-hmm in the 60s to try mm -hmm. to find out about what people knew about the Hall of Records under the mm -hmm. Sphinx and if that was real, because Casey mm -hmm. had said the Atlanteans left their records there about this two-eye advanced stone, this crystal that was a power station. Mm -hmm. uh, so certainly there are things along, we know that they've searched for Noah's Ark, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. um, so when they're engaged in this, in fact, a lot of the things that we see, it takes place very often in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And um, we've also seen geopolitical situations there in the Caribbean mm -hmm. around this. Um, but they are engaged, in fact, in archaeological wars. Yes, yes. They're engaged, I think. I, I think what you're looking at, Daniel, is you're looking at the continuation of the Anon Erbe Dienst. You know, that Nazi organization that sponsored all these archaeological projects and so on. But remember what Himmler said when he established it. He said that this is for the purpose of utilizing any potential military potential that it may represent. Wow. So in other words, we're looking, we're looking at that same agenda just carried on into modern times, as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, I, I, I totally think that the insertion of American forces into Iraq for the ostensible purpose of preventing Saddam Hussein from acquiring weapons of mass destruction. I think there was a certain truth to that because 
the way I look at it, part of the agenda, the hidden agenda there, was to go into that country and see if they could find any of those records, any of those cuneiform tablets, any of those hidden technologies. That's what I think Saddam Hussein was looking for. Oh, yeah. So they trot out Colin Powell and, you know, give a speech about weapons of mass destruction. And most people are going to think, oh, A-bombs and chemical weapons and biological weapons. They're not going to be thinking in terms of an ancient technology or information about it. But that, I think, was definitely one of the hidden agendas there. And the same thing with Mars. Yes, absolutely. Um, we know the looting of the Baghdad Museum was bizarre mm -hmm. on a number oh, of totally. Because ordinarily, they never would have allowed that to happen. No, never. And never. they had complete control uh, right. over those various things. And there was some confusion even about who was in there and looting. Right. And at a certain point, um, people said, oh, you know, these people are dressed up as Americans. Mm -hmm. um, but you, you've pointed out before that this is a literal switch of uniform. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, about who was in there, and the groups that were in there doing archaeology were, in fact, German. French, German and French. French and German. Yeah. French and German archaeological teams. And this is what makes me suspicious about that whole story. And my take on it is that, that the archaeological teams themselves, which we, before we went into Iraq, we told the French and we told the Germans, get your people out of there. And they did. But here's the problem. The Baghdad Museum looting was reported first by Der Spiegel in Germany, interestingly enough. Oh. And they're the ones that pointed out people, witnesses saw people in American uniforms going into the museum and hauling out these crates. All right. Well, anybody can put on an American uniform. Right. You know, <laughs> the Germans have an intelligence service, too. The French have an intelligence service, too. And they certainly know what our uniforms look like. Yeah. So, you know, they can they can dress anybody up and, you know, give a false flag. But the thing that interested me is that the Baghdad Museum incident, when it was first reported, they said that people knew exactly where to go and exactly what they were looking for. Now, here's the problem. The problem is that the archaeological teams themselves would be keeping field reports of what they find. In other words, you know, you're on an archaeological dig and you find something interesting at such and such a depth level and at such and such a location in your dig, and you write down the location of what you find, the depth at which it was found, a brief description of what was found, and so on and so forth. But no one, no one, Daniel, since the Baghdad Museum looting, has ever made reference to the field catalogs of those archaeological teams doing the digs. So no what? It's really yeah, it's a glaring omission. Yeah. Because if you're looking to recover this stuff, the first thing you're going to do is consult those field reports of the archaeological digs. And here's the problem. No one has. So I'm wondering if we even had access to them. Somebody did to go into the museum and haul that stuff out of there. And the finger of guilt points directly to the French and the German teams. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that would know what was in there. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting because Hussein seemed almost obsessed with getting oh, yeah. these archaeological digs. Yeah. And he had archaeological digs all over the place. Yeah, he had them all over Iraq. And I, I again, I think, you know, Hussein's not a stupid man. 
and he's going to be reading the same text that everybody else is reading and looking at, you know, looking at things like the Epic of Ninurta and say, oh, well, that's, that's a Sears catalog inventory. Let's go find the stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh. uh, that's true. They found evidence of electroplating in oh, Iraq. Yeah. I yeah. remember that. Yeah. And the Baghdad battery. The Baghdad battery, you know, and uh, all of the other weird stuff that you see on those cylinder seals. Um, I just, uh, just before we came on air, someone sent me an email of an article that they found a cylinder seal. And I looked at this thing and Daniel, I, I'm so, I'm so gobsmacked by, by what's on this cylinder seal that I have to wonder if it's even real. Did somebody just make this up for a joke? Wow. What's because on? what's depicted on the seal is a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like it looks like the fat man plutonium bomb that we dropped on Nagasaki. Wow. That's what it looks like. Incredible. And then next to it, there's this tree-like thing that could also be a mushroom cloud. And inside the 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 mushroom part of the cloud, there are all these little arrows, like you know, lightning bolts and stuff. And I'm thinking, wow. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Either someone's having a pretty good joke here, or this cylinder seal exists and it's depicting something that you know shouldn't be around in the forest. I would love to see this. By the oh, way, yeah, you, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I, I'll blog about it probably next week because you know it. It's one of those stories that it, you have to speculate about. You know, you just you just have to. So here you have a bomb in a mushroom cloud. <laughs> Wow. Cool. Yeah, it's just, it's just, and it wouldn't surprise me. We do know that in Egypt, you go to Dender in Egypt and look at some of those so called hieroglyphics, oh, yeah. and you're looking at jet airplanes and helicopters, yeah, right. <laughs> and Tesla coils, <laughs> moving right on down the line, too. Moving right on down the line. Parade. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Anyway, so yeah, I think well, what's interesting for me about this is, uh, for example, with the Epic of Ninurta, some of the things that they say in there are incredible. One of the mm -hmm. things you've pointed out is that they say, you know what, here's an inventory of the weapons you need to destroy. Oh, guess what? We actually don't know how to destroy this. So what are we going to do? We're going to hide it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this thing is so powerful, there's no way to just bury it. No. Right. They have and, to kind of actually get rid of it. And here's the problem. Let's let's go back to something I mentioned in the videos that were taken down because we're impersonating historical events. <laughs> <laughs> but I still want my star in Hollywood by the way, guys. <laughs> you deserve it. <laughs> well, the we best impersonator. I'm well, trying to figure did. out, by the way, which event we were impersonating. Yeah, I, I, you know, give us give us a hint here, guy. <laughs> Is it the moon landing? I, I don't... <laughs> Mars well, rover. We were talking yeah. about moon landings and alternative three and everything else. So who knows what? <laughs> yeah, it was getting pretty out. There. It was getting... But anyway, here's the problem. Um, you know, if they're hiding, if they're hiding some of this stuff according to the Epic of Ninurta, then where are they hiding it? Where's the yeah. likely place? Well, if you're looking on planet, the likely place would be obviously somewhere in Mesopotamia, mm -hmm. or maybe Egypt. Who knows? But if you're thinking in terms of off-planet civilizations, well, one place to hide it would be the Moon or Mars. Yes. And here's what I find so uncanny: 
if you if you read the epic of Ninurta, you've got this Babylonian god that's named Nergal, N-E-R-G-A-L. Right. Nergal is the Babylonian god of Mars. He's their god of war. Nergal, if you look at the derivation and follow the name through history, Nergal becomes Erekal in Babylonia. Erekal becomes Hercules. Mm. in the Greek mythology and later becomes Ares in, in, in Rome. So in other words, you're dealing with the same dude here. Right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, so anyway, the creepiest thing uh, that I ever encountered, one of the creepiest things I ever encountered was when Richard Hoagland first began looking at the face on Mars and created his Mars mission project and got all of these experts together to, you know, help, put together a case for why this was not just a trick of light and shadow. He had an artist do a profile of the face on Mars based on computer modeling and so on and so forth. And you look at that profile and then compare it to a little picture of Nergal from Babylonian Reliefs. Oh. And the resemblance between the two is, I put it in, in Giza Death Star Destroyed. This, mm -hmm. this comparison the 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 resemblance between the two is palpable and chilling interesting so if there's you know i'm thinking if there's a place you're going to look for some of this stuff go to mars mars um it's interesting because of course von braun wrote mm -hmm. a science fiction novel mm -hmm. about a civilization on mars and his character the leader of mars was named Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Apparently, he had the ability to predict things there, Joseph. Apparently, he did. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know if many people know this. Von Braun's mother was reputed to be a very good psychic. Interesting. But what I find even more interesting is given given Von Braun's connections, you know, with what I've been calling Nazi International, is he really is he really being precognitive or is he letting out a little detail that he just happens to know about? And right. I bet my bet's the latter. Yeah. Because again, you've got that strange article. I'll have to find it about Otrog and Ellen <laughs> Otrog and Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> well, he'd been known to let things out before. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons you suggested he got fired from NASA. Uh, was because he had actually let out something about the moon mission that wasn't known. Right. Which was about the, the shape of the moon. No, it's the gravity. The gravity. There was a Time magazine article shortly after the moon landing where they put one of these boxes, you know, like they do at the bottom of the page. And in the box, they had done a little interview with, with Dr. Von Braun. I remember this. I, I saw it, you know, that's when I decided to write Fun Brown, you know, I'm 13 years old and hey, you know, <laughs> so I wrote him. <laughs> What's up? Did you get a response? That's... Oh yeah, he wrote a very nice letter. Oh. <laughs> he didn't answer my question, but he wrote back. <laughs> that's great. But, but anyway, you know, I'm like, what's going on here, Werner? <laughs> but, but he wrote, he, he gave a little interview 
And he said that the echogravosphere, you know, the neutral point of gravity between the Earth and the Moon's gravitational fields, was somewhere around 23,500 miles from the surface of the Moon. And I'm like, what? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> because that means the Moon is much more massive than we've, uh, pardon me, much less massive than we've been told. Uh, pardon me, I got my figure wrong. He said it was 43,000. 500 miles from the surface oh. of the moon, not 23,000. So that means the, the moon is much more massive. And I'm thinking, okay, there went right out the window all of those weekly reader articles that I used to read when I was a kid in elementary school about, you know, the astronauts on the moon being able to leap to tall buildings and drive golf balls, you know, <laughs> because the gravity is too dense. Uh. And if that's the case, how do we get off of it? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, getting off of it was always bizarre anyway. Oh, yeah. That's, you, you know. Pointed out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Getting up there is one thing. Yeah. Getting um, off is the other problem. Just if you're dealing with, if you're dealing, here's the problem. If the moon is more massive for whatever reason than we've been told, or it has these mass cons, these concentrations of mass beneath the surface of the moon, which is documented. That would explain why all of those early Soviet and American probes went either careening wildly by the moon and shooting off into space or slamming into it mm -hmm. because they're dealing with the wrong figures. All right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And they yeah. probably, uh, we probably enjoyed the fact that they had the wrong figures. Well, at least for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, especially those groups inside of NASA that were known to really hate the Soviets. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, exactly. Let me ask you this when we're talking about this aspect, which is, you know, you were citing this like Hercules Mars, you know, thing. So let's go into the kind of occult window on this for a mm -hmm. moment. Mm hmm. When we look at Mars, the symbolism of any other planet is, you know, th this is the one that is the war god. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what are they doing promoting Mars on this level? Um, why is Mars the goal for civilization? And, you know, Bezos was talking and he said, from now on, we're going to have people living on Mars and living in space. And, you know, only certain people will live on the Earth. It'll be like a resort. Mm -hmm. This kind of talk. Mm -hmm. um, what is it that's going on there mythologically, uh, symbology? What are they doing with that? My suspicion, that's that's an excellent question, and I, I have thought about it. And the one thing that stands out in my mind is that with the emphasis on getting back to Mars and establishing a human colony there, that it's ultimately an act of rebellion because if you look at Mars in mythology, it's always not only connected with war, but in some cases, particularly in, if you look at the way the Babylonian texts treat this cosmic war, it's, it's really kind of a civil war in the pantheon of gods. Right. And a certain segment of the pantheon is in open rebellion against the rest it's Tiamat versus Marduk. And you get a hint of that even in some of those uh, passages in the Enema Elish. After the war, Mar it says that Marduk 
remeasured the structure of the deep, hmm. which is a very, very telling phrase if you're approaching this from the standpoint of, of a physics that's being talked about. Because all of a sudden you're missing a planet in the solar system. That's going to interfere with the celestial mechanics of, of the solar system from that point out. It's going gonna, it's gonna to knock it all into a cocked hat. And you're going to have to reestablish order. Well, if you look at the god Marduk, he is really kind of a god of order. He's kind of a, a descent, if you will, from Enlil, you know, the great Babylonian god of order. Mm-hmm. And so Marduk is reasserting this order after Tiamat's rebellion and all of that. So I think I think part of it is this this quest for power, for ultimate power, and looking at it mythologically, a kind of a rebellion against established order. So that's part of it in my thinking. And you know, Bezos coming out and saying, "Well, a few of you lucky folks might get to." get to continue to live on earth but we're going to ship the rest of you off into prison-like conditions on mars (laughs) nice guy yeah real nice guy (laughs) i think uh you know paying those amazon warehouse workers 12 bucks an hour has gone to your head yeah yeah exactly (laughs) exactly you know uh what's what are we what are we laboring for here jeff is you know right you know space colony slavery right space colony slavery there we go yeah um this is i don't even fly (laughs) (laughs) i don't want to get on a rocket (laughs) very much you've made a point um about you know a lot of the things that they're claiming they will do with space with chemical rockets don't make sense no uh, asteroid mining and no. things of this nature it's not I gonna mean, happen i mean come on did you see the cartoons and i i'm i'm literally using that word advisedly did you see the cartoons that nasa came up with when they first started talking about going out and mining asteroids did you see some of the artist pictures they, you know, yes, yes. Remember, remember those big Dixie cups? That they were <laughs> yeah. Go out there and scoop up these <laughs> asteroids with chemical rockets. And I'm, I'm like, guys, come on. Not all of us are this stupid. It ain't going to happen. It's just not. So, yeah. I, you so know, they're still using the cover story of the chemical rocket. Yeah, they're still using the cover story of the chemical rockets, but you're not going to be able to mine asteroids with chemical rockets and make it, in my opinion, cost effective. And the other thing we've got to remember, we've had, you know, ever since the end of World War II, we've essentially had a secret space program going on with lots and lots of money sloshing around in the system to build, all, you know, God knows what, underground bases, you know, um, ionic propulsion who knows but it ain't going to be chemical rockets that are doing this there's just no way um absolutely i mean it, even during the nazi period they were working with other technologies yes. and 70 80 years ago yeah and again you had a two-track space program there you had the rockets you know von braun and you know once the rockets are up who cares where they come down you know just like the, <laughs> the tom lehrer song but then you also had this very exotic technology that they were working on you know with things like the bell um so you had a two-track system there early on yeah and 
interestingly enough, you know, you look at some of those Nazis that, that I think were writing about that exotic technology, and they were already thinking, let's use this in, in psychological warfare. Oh, and wow. yeah, so you know, shades a little shade of Project Blue Beam there. You know, yeah, if, right. If you right. Want to get down to it. Yeah, they were ready then. Yeah. Well, is it fair to characterize a lot of the Nazi space program as controlling things on the ground from space, basically? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I want to dip back into this archaeological piece for a second. It's a story mm -hmm. that you told me. Um, and it relates to this book, The Thrice Great Hermetica, which is oh, an interesting yeah. book where you, you go through so many different eras. It's quite fascinating, and I want to recommend it for people who haven't seen that one. Um, but in there, there's a story that you bring out, and it's, it's in the later part of the book, about the Germans doing this kind of quest for the grail, Mm -hmm. and uh, the Nazi party being very obsessed with this, them also mm -hmm. having a very sharp identification with sacred objects in general. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there's the whole story about this crown and mm -hmm. the Templars mm -hmm. that I thought was interesting on that front. Can you give us a little bit of that story? Yeah, there was a German um, scholar by the name of Otto Rahn, R-A-H-N, that was very interested in the story of the Templars and the Albigensian Crusade and, and all of that that occurred in, in southern France, which was was nothing less than, than a genocidal... Uh, there's, there's no other way to interpret it. It was a genocidal crusade to get rid of the Albigensians. And Otto Rahn had been in southern France because he was looking for the grail. He thought that uh, Wolfram von Eschenbach's Parsifal, the medieval story of the grail, was actually based on history, and it was based on the Albigensian crusade against the Cathars. And he came back to Germany, he published a book, and then the book caught the eye of one Heinrich Himmler. You know, talk about a man you don't want to <laughs> don't want reading your <laughs> attracting his attention. So Himmler actually contacted Ron, inducted him, forced him basically to be inducted into the SS and sent him back to southern France to, you know, continue searching. And if you read Ron's books, uh, they're they're very very interesting. Um, the guy was clearly onto something, but he he ran across a local French shepherd down in the Languedoc, and the shepherd told him, "Oh yeah, we know all about that crusade. They what they were looking for were the jewels in Lucifer's crown, and that." really grabbed Ron's attention because Ron had come to the conclusion that the way that the grail is described in, in Parsifal was as a stone, mm. not, you know, not a, not a cup. A stone. Yeah. And to me, that's a very interesting thing because Ron, or pardon me, the shepherd told Ron that actually Pope Innocence the third, the man behind that, genocide, wanted that stone for a stone to put in the papal tiara. Oh, wow. You know, talk about talk Incredible. about 
Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because if you look at the stones in Lucifer's crown, they're the same stones that you find on the ephod of the Hebrew high priest. They're oh, exactly, really? Yes, they're exactly the same. And supposedly Lucifer lost one of these stones in his crown at when he fell. And Innocent III was looking for it and thought it was thought it was in the long dock, which I find very interesting because there there have been reports of people trying to find these these stones from the crowns. And you know, you've got you've got a parallel in in um, Tolkien's Silmarillion with Morgoth's crown or Melkor's <laughs> crown and the missing Silmaril, the stone. Yes. So you know, it's it's very very interesting lore that's out there, and for Himmler to latch on to it is very very interesting because this this tells me that Himmler was already thinking there's something down there and we got to go get it. Mm -hmm. And the story ends in 1944. Get this, ends in 1944 when they send Otto Skorzeny, Hitler's favorite commando to the long dock to look for something. Reportedly, uh, Skorzeny telegraphed Himmler, we found it. Himmler then, and this was after Himmler had dispatched the von Zalza SS regiment to the long dock. Now, that name should ring a bell because Konrad von Zalza was the first Grand Master of the Teutonic Knights. Oh, yeah. So, you know, there's symbolism all <laughs> Yeah, there's symbolism yeah. all over this place. Yeah. So supposedly, Skorzeny telegraphs Himmler, we found it, and then Himmler sends this airplane skywriting over the long dock. I don't remember what it was supposedly skywriting. And then uh, Skorzeny and company abandoned the long dock because the Allies had just invaded southern France. Fascinating. And, you know, this is another part of the story that gets shoved aside, um, there was no military reason, none whatsoever, for the Allies to launch an entire D-Day-sized invasion of southern France. By that point, the German armies in France are collapsing and they're hightailing it back to the Reich as fast as they can. And I've always suspected, you know, I'm not the first one to suspect something here. Senator Joseph McCarthy pointed out that this was a useless, unneeded invention on the floor, invasion on the floor of the Senate. Yes. But, but I speculate that, no, we knew that the Germans were looking for something, so we went into southern France uh, to find out what, you know, just what the heck are they doing down there. It's the archaeological wars. It's the archaeological war, again. Which often piggyback on the back of the real thing. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, that's really fascinating. The quote from McCarthy's odd too. Because... Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sure is. He's, he's getting into some stuff there, and it's like, what are you talking about exactly? Well, Senator McCarthy, when when I read this, Daniel, I I just you know I I had read this speech before many years before, but it didn't register with me. So when I was doing the McCarthy book, I went back and reread it. And I just thought, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> it's, here's Senator McCarthy on the floor of the United States Senate giving this long speech about General Marshall. And 
He's he's excoriating Marshall for this unneeded, unnecessary invasion of southern France, and he was not alone. This is important to remember. General Mark Clark, the Allied commander of uh, Allied forces in Italy, asked the same question: Why why are we invading there? You know that's useless. But McCarthy gives this long speech about Senator uh, about uh, General Marshall, and at the very end of this speech. There's this odd little reference. This is just plopped right in there <laughs> about uh, the Merovingian in the White House may know. And, of course, Merovingians, here's a Roman Catholic senator dropping a very esoteric, abstruse reference to the Merovingian dynasty of France. Yeah, you know the dynasty that preceded Charlemagne, <laughs> dropping dropping this reference into a speech on the floor of the United States Senate and using it to refer to President Truman. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> now, folks, I don't care what you think about Senator McCarthy, one way or the other, but to drop that reference, that's sending a message. Yeah, that only he and Truman probably ever really knew. Uh, the full extent of what that message was. But given the fact that suddenly, years, decades later, we have Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code and, right. and you know, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and that whole thing with the Merovingians. And here's Senator McCarthy, you know, <laughs> 30 in the 50s there, yeah. In the 50s, talking, <laughs> talking about Merovingians, Southern it's France. It's so strange. It really Southern is. France and invasions. Of, yeah, it's, it's not just strange. He knew something. Yes. He knew something. It just stands out dramatically yeah. Oh, yeah. in the middle of that. And he's pressing also that general basically saying, you had no reason to go into right. southern France. Right. Obviously, he knew that, that the military reasons were off the table. So right. he wanted to bring all of that out. And this is a weird thing that you've mentioned in relation to McCarthy. I wanted to do a little aside on that because you've done a few very interesting books on McCarthy. But McCarthy also, as you found out, gets deep into the UFO file. Oh, yeah. And he's talking about Project Blue Book in 1953 and 1954. Yeah, he's talking about 52 during the Monmouth Committee hearings. Um, you know, Blue Book was not even really that publicly known. And right. 1952, you know, the context here for for what McCarthy was doing is just astonishing to me because that's the year of the big UFO flap in Washington, D.C. Yes. And here's McCarthy running his probe of, of communist penetration of Fort Monmouth, which is doing all of this exotic radar research. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden he stumped, and, and folks, you've got to understand these transcripts that I'm referring to of his hearings about Fort Monmouth were not declassified by the United States Senate until 2003 under Senator Joseph Lieberman, okay? Oh, okay. Yeah, there's another a-hole. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, Lieberman was the chairman of the same committee that McCarthy was chairman only decades later. But it was finally declassified in 2003, which, you know, when I made that discovery and found those transcripts were available, I thought, well, no wonder I haven't been able to find them all these years. The Senate was sitting on them. Right. So let's go read what old Joe was up to. So I buy the, the transcripts, you know, ended up being in a binder book about yay thick. 
and I'm reading through this stuff, and I'm getting all of a sudden McCarthy asking, oh, well, uh, were your radar experts perhaps down in New Mexico and say, like, oh, maybe July of 1947? <laughs> 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 you know, and again, this is over and over. This is not a one-off. He, yeah. He's pressing on this connection to New Mexico in July of 1947. Think Roswell, folks. Right. Um, you know, th this is not a stupid man. And he had an ironclad memory. I mean, he was well known for his ability to pull details out of his head. So this is this is not unusual. And then we get these curious references to Blue Book when he starts probing, well, where are these missing documents? Why did you re destroy top secret documents? Where is the register for these? You know, on and on this goes. And the army is literally stonewalling. So I think McCarthy, you know, he drops his Merovingian bomb. He's dropping little Roswell bombs right. <laughs> in, the middle, in the middle of these hearings. And the army, you know, the army is frustrated and it doesn't know what to do. And I think this is one of the reasons they set him up in, in the army McCarthy hearings and brought him down. He was getting close uh, to the UFO file, as you call it. Uh, there's there's no question. You can read the transcripts. If you can come to another conclusion, have at it. But I don't think there's any way to avoid it. Oh, it's fascinating. And the, what fascinates me about reading those books is that it's Roy Cohn mm -hmm. there with McCarthy, and he's pushing mm -hmm. hard mm -hmm. on these guys. It's almost like interrogation. Yes, it is. It is, especially especially as you say, when Cohn is, is doing the questioning. And again, you know, who's Cohn connected with? Donald Trump. Trump. Yeah, Donald Trump. No question. And um, he shows up in those, the weird documents about DISC that yes. are released in the Torbett document. Yes. And he's associated with Defense Industrial Security Command. Yes. Um, so Cohn, he sort of has a continuation mm -hmm. <laughs> there. He comes out of the McCarthy thing, knowing about Blue Book and all the rest. And then he's mm -hmm. part of DISC, which is, mm -hmm. again, part of that Industrial Security Command about mm -hmm. the UFO file. And good friend with the Reagans. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Cohn is that inside piece, and I think that he's the key also to Trump's entree into the political world. Oh, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. Uh, Trump Tower in New York City would not have been built if it were not for Roy Cohn's influence. It just would not have happened. So, in other words, the, the connection there is very, very strong, and it's very deep. Yes. And as, you, as you've said many times, Cone is the original swamp creature. <laughs> he um, is. He indeed. really is. <laughs> Does it get any swampier than Cone? <laughs> no. <laughs> Not in my opinion. <laughs> Joseph, there's something that's a very interesting tie-in. It just came out, and I, I want to get uh, some of your quick responses on this. We haven't had a chance to talk about this. But um, Judge Andrew DiPolitano was speaking with Gerald Solente recently, mm -hmm. and he's talking about his relationship, his phone calls with Trump. And he mentions, uh, because for a while there, they were friends and they were working together and they had a falling out eventually. Mm -hmm. But he mentions the period when the uh, Kennedy records are going to be released, October 26, 2017. And he said, I was on the phone with the president. Mm -hmm. And I said, are you going to release those documents because the public needs to know and all the rest? And that Trump said to him, and this is his quote, he said, Trump said, if you knew what was in those records, you would know that I can't release them. Hmm. Now, we know that Trump did release some of them, but the CIA 
like went in that morning and blocked all the records from their end. Mm -hmm. So um, Napolitano pressed him and Trump said, Andrew, trust me, the things that I've seen in those records, we could never, you would know, you wouldn't release them either. So um, my mind instantly went to the kind of caddy UFO file mm -hmm. explanation mm -hmm. piece. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, because we know that the CIA would have tried to extricate anything out of there and right. make themselves look good. Um, I had a thought, which is speculation, but that the CIA director that the Kennedys put in might have left something in there that they just, you know, it was an ironclad thing impossible to remove. So their best game, their best play was to just block it from release. What do you think of those comments? I, well, I'm not surprised. And like you, I'm inclined to think that it has something to do with the UFO file. Because let's look at the constellation of, of connections here in the big picture. Uh, we've got McCarthy at Fort Monmouth doing his, his probe and over and over again, the UFO issues coming up and it's coming up. It's important for people to understand this. McCarthy is a, is a very smart man. And when he starts probing these types of areas, he will always speak in code. Mm-hmm. So in other words, he's not he he doesn't blurt out Roswell. He blurts out July 1947 over right. and over and over again. Uh, you've got the UFO flap going on in 1952 as the hearings are taking place. So in other words, this is not a stupid man. He knows what he knows what he's dealing with. And then you've got Kennedy, who is through his brother Bobby closely associated with McCarthy. Right. Okay. The Kennedy family was very, very closely associated with McCarthy, donated money to his campaigns. Bobby Kennedy secretly visits McCarthy's funeral, and on and on we could go. Uh, John Kennedy conveniently sidesteps the censure vote against McCarthy, so, you know, arranges that he doesn't have to be there. All right, it's time for back surgery. Yeah, yeah it's time for back surgery now. <laughs> that, was, that was a good move. <laughs> it really was, you know. But then Kennedy gets into office after Eisenhower's military-industrial complex speech, which I'm sure they talked about, you know, in their private discussions before Eisenhower left the White House. And then Kennedy comes out, I think it's in mid-1961, thereabouts, where he orders the CIA to go through their entire UFO files and find out which ones can be pulled to share with the Soviets because he wants to have this joint moon mission with the Soviets. And Nikita Khrushchev is just about ready to give in to that when Kennedy is assassinated and Khrushchev is placed under house arrest and overthrown. You know? yeah, right. That was pretty fast. Yeah, that was, you know, it was, it was lightning speed after the assassination. Um, so I think, I think there's a UFO connection hovering in the background of all of this. I, I, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. Plus, we have that strange association between, as you pointed out, between the owner of the Texas School Book Depository, Colonel Byrd, mm. a relative of Admiral Byrd, right. of Operation High Jump fame. Folks. Yes. You know, on and on we could go. So I think this whole thing, you know, Kennedy managed to piss off so many people, but the, the core of it, the, the, 
the deepest and hardest core of it is, I think, having to do with UFOs and space. Yes. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that that's the case. It's like the gigantic historical omission yes. there. And that's how we get into the situation in 2021 where you have the CIA trying to run phony UFO disclosure, and we still don't know right. anything. Right. Um, it's fascinating to me, and I, I, I do want to get into this a little bit deeper because uh, Kennedy, on a certain level, dealing with this, he is saying, oh, I'm going to open this up. I'm going to share this information with the Russians. Mm -hmm. And that whole group that's inside NASA, which already constitutes a kind of secondary space program. Right. They're already kind of doing their own experiments and their own stuff. And von Braun is in the in the heart of that. Right. Um, and this Davis character, of course, he's in the middle of that as well. Mm -hmm. um, when the death of Kennedy is investigated later in the 60s, and it's 67 when the Garrison investigation, everything that he does, and remember the records that are blocked, all 12 of the files on the CIA side about Garrison are all blocked. Jefferson Morley is that Washington Post reporter uh, who put those details together. So you can't get the Garrison files. Um, but it's interesting to me because, and you pointed it out, which is Garrison runs over and over again into aerospace and the US, yes. uh, which doesn't make any sense to him. Yeah, it doesn't. He Garrison runs into three things. And if you look at what the three things are, it's very peculiar. He runs over and over again into aerospace. He runs over and over again into these weird church associations hovering around David Ferry and uh, Guy Bannister yes. and those people. And then he runs into this very strange financial system that seems to be somehow coupled in. You know, he calls it Murder Incorporated. And that's, yeah. that's where we get the phrase is from Jim Garrison and this whole Permandex mm -hmm. outfit and so on. So in other words, Garrison stumbled across the same network of connections that Kennedy ran into. Kennedy, yeah. let's remember, Kennedy decides in June of 1963 to have the Treasury print up $4 billion worth of United States notes debt-free notes, bypass the Federal Reserve completely. Well, well it's incredible. It's incredible. And in retrospect, I think Kennedy knew to some extent that there's some sort of hidden system of finance backing all of this weird aerospace stuff up. Right. I, I really do. And he's coming off of Eisenhower and Eisenhower's disgust with the military-industrial complex and on and on we could go. So Garrison stumbles into the same network of connections that he's really investigating are behind the murder of the president. So again, I, I, I don't see that you can look at the Kennedy assassination and come away from it without at least having an awareness that space forms some big component of what all of that was about. And as you say, here we are at the end of this arc of American history that begins with that assassination. And what are we hearing? Oh, well, we've got a UFO problem. There are ETs up there on Mars or wherever, and they're flying this stuff around our skies. Right. And it's all coming out of the CIA. Yeah, right. <laughs> a trustworthy branch of government. A trustworthy branch of government, <laughs> if there ever was one. With honorable officers like Lou Elizondo. Yeah. Like that. It's just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the drone king, you know. <laughs> Well, you John know. Brennan cares deeply about the UFO file. I want to mention something to you here, um, which is about Avril 
Haynes, the director of national intelligence, who was known as the drone queen because <laughs> she was she was Brennan's undersecretary there. She's his deputy going on. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting to me. Uh, so she comes out yesterday and we did a program on this last night. This just happened now. They did the UAP thing in Washington, and she was sitting down there, and she said, well, it seems like they could be extraterrestrial. And she messed up the word strangely, and I thought, oh, that's a weird thing for her to do. She stumbled on it. But UFOs buzzing U.S. warships may be aliens, right? That's the headline there. And there she is. So, you know, that sends ripples around the world, of course. You've got the director of national intelligence, which is supposed to be the top of the whole branch. We know the CIA actually rules and the dna is kind of this overlay but anyway she's basically the mass coordinator of all our intelligence and she's saying it's aliens so the russians are sitting back there and thinking what that's the question to me <laughs> yes okay sit down <laughs> pour pour yourself three fingers of your favorite adult beverage <laughs> If I were the Russians, here's what I'm thinking. Let's assume I'm an FSB analyst and I'm looking at this theater of disclosure, if you want to use that word, coming out of the United States about UFOs and ETs. Right. My question is, where is that Chinese defector? All right. What in the name of sense has he been telling the Americans? This was the head of Chinese counterintelligence, which means that this man probably had deep insight into China's UFO files, which China doesn't talk about very much. Exactly. And he defected not to the CIA, but to the DIA, oh. which was the very agency that John Kennedy started because That's he didn't true. trust the CIA. <laughs> Excellent point. So I'm wondering, I, I really am, Daniel, why have we heard no more about this man? What exactly is he telling them? And why is the CIA reacting with all of this UFO talk? I think there's a connection, in other words, between his defection and what we're seeing now, and they are either prepping a narrative because they don't like what he's telling them, or they're trying to get ahead of whatever it is that will eventually come out. This man is very important to this whole UFO story, I think, in my opinion. If you're the head of Chinese counterintelligence, that's the desk that's going to be handling anything UFO-related for the People's Liberation Army. Absolutely no doubt in my mind. And it raises the question of why did he choose now, now to defect? What's yeah. going on there? You know, uh, there's, there's something going on, and I think definitely it could be UFO-related. Absolutely. China's... Yeah. When you, when you look at the, the announcements that the Chinese space program has made since that defector defected, it's bizarre. Yeah. Because China's saying, oh, we want to build a kilometer-long mothership up, from, <laughs> up there. <laughs> and, you know, they're testing all of these hypersonic missiles. And meanwhile, there's all these explosions happening inside China that China's not talking about. 
Right. Um, if something is going on, and I think it's UFO related, and moreover, I think if you look at these explosions in, in, in China and Russia in the past few years, I think we're in a hot war of some sort. I really do. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I thought when that Tianjin uh, chemical plant exploded a few years ago and looked at the crater of that thing, I thought, no, that's not a chemical explosion signature. That's a deep penetration deep into the surface of the earth. So something's going on, and uh, I don't know what it is. Um, trying that defector into the UFO side, that makes a lot of sense because we've gone into a whole weird zone around yep. UFOs where this media, this government, they can't talk enough about UFOs after completely dismissing the subject for 75 years. Yep. Um, yep. And it's a very uneasy thing, and it was very clumsily done when they rolled in there and they were like, you know, here's this goofy TTSA, and here are all these New York Times articles. And um, it was interesting. The first thing I noticed when the TTSA came out was the presence, the open presence of CIA officers mm -hmm. on the board. Mm -hmm. They had over 100 years of CIA office experience, mm -hmm. officer experience, uh, over 100 years on their board. I mean, you know, that's not just like, hey, we have one CIA advisor. It's like the whole thing is a CIA outfit. Mm -hmm. And um, now something interesting is happening, which is about Avi Loeb, because it seems like they were pushing the UFO threat there. They were trying to get this in the media and hyped up. And somehow with the UAP uh, report from last June, that sort of fizzled mm -hmm. the threat part so mm -hmm. far. And they seem to be now incorporating this idea, and Avi Loeb suggested it. And here's how it works. Oh, a Muamua came into this system, and it was actually an alien probe, and it's AI, and we need to get our AI up to snuff so it can communicate and give us all these wonderful this knowledge about <laughs> our planet. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Loeb, while he's doing all this, he's like, we have to take a scientific approach. So he creates the Galileo Project, which is mm -hmm. started in June. Mm -hmm. And the two people he just recruited into it, though, were Elizondo, CIA man, and Chris Mellon, again, W's defense you know, intelligence coordinator guy, mm -hmm. Iraq war and all that junk. Mm -hmm. So uh, the same faces just rearranged now around a scientific board. And now we have him sitting down with the director of national intelligence and Bezos and being like, hey, you know, we're going to, these aliens are there and, you know, uh, we're going to communicate with them the same way, you know, we need to get up to snuff on AIs the same way, like our kids now are good at tech and like the older people aren't so good at tech. And that's the same position that we're in with AI. So we get our AI up to snuff and it'll communicate with these aliens and a mua mua and everybody will live happily ever after. <laughs> so as the orchestra plays near my God to thee and you're rearranging the deck chairs, on the Titanic. I <laughs> <laughs> Where are they going, Joseph, with the, ah. with the UFO narrative? They've, they've tried to take it over now. That it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's out of the domain of the UFO researchers, many of which uh, got confused by the TTSA thing, apparently. And now the mainstream media, they want to own this whole thing and the CIA wants to run it. Where mm -hmm. are they going with this? I think they're prepping a narrative. And I think they are prepping the threat narrative. Yeah. And the reason that they're doing so, you know, Carol Rosen said it, is so that they can weaponize space. Yeah. Uh, now, what that raises the question, are they really dealing with real ETs or are they just faking it? Mm -hmm. And I'm about 50-50 on that. 
because if you've got exotic technology to begin with, you can easily fake that sort of thing. And I'm going back to uh, saucers, swastikas, and psyops with Otto Scorsini right. and his, you know, his report that I've just seen something remarkable in terms of some sort of exotic technology. He never specifies what it is. Magda Goebbels, Goebbels' wife, Dr. Goebbels' wife, even talks about this in her diary. And he comes up with this idea, well, let's use this exotic technology for, for psychological warfare. Right. So, you know, it could be that scenario. But then again, they could genuinely be afraid uh, that they are dealing with something like that that is imminent, and they're trying to get ahead of that narrative too. It's it's one of the two. It's one of the two. That's really interesting. The fear aspect is interesting to me because, of course, they always do exaggerated things when they're afraid. Yep. Uh, SDI Star Wars Iran Contra. Mm -hmm. There's a fear thing going on mm -hmm. in the middle of that, um, and we found out later through Gorbachev. Gorbachev mm -hmm. came up a couple of times today that this is something the Reagan White House was afraid of, mm -hmm. which is they thought a UFO invasion is is imminent, and they wanted to throw in with the Russians on it. Well, let's remember Gorbachev's response was. An unhesitating, of course, will help. Yes. He, he didn't hesitate. It was right, bang. You know, right. He didn't have to stop and think about it. And what that tells me is, well, the Soviets were afraid. And if you look at, Daniel, you mentioned the fear factor, and I think you're absolutely spot on here, because if you look at the, the whole um, COVID narrative, the Great Reset narrative, and so on, these people are in a hurry. Yeah. And they're acting afraid of something yes and they're making egregious mistakes yeah because of it because they are in a hurry and they are afraid they're making some egregious mistakes their narrative is collapsing around them no one trusts them mm -hmm. and for good reason no one trusts them exactly so they are you know if they are facing that kind of threat the only thing that's going to save their butts as far as i'm concerned is a real honest transparency about whatever it is that they're dealing with yeah uh, you know they've tried every narrative in the book climate change global warming all of this stuff is collapsing and the one thing that isn't collapsing is is the ufo problem right and they're still trying you know now all of a sudden after 70 years of one narrative we're getting the complete opposite tell me that that's going to in ensure or engender trust <laughs> exactly this is the problem, uh, you know, because they're not trustworthy to start with right. around this. They've they've lied. They've killed a president. I mean, come yeah, right. on. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, let's get into it. And a the, lot of his family. <laughs> yes, exactly. And they've kept the records hidden for 58 years on yeah. that one. Yeah. Thank you for transparency, Murray. I mean, I made the point that uh, even... In, you know, when Khrushchev took over Russia, he was like, yeah, Stalin did some bad things. Let's take some of those statues down. You know, these guys will not take their own sacred cows and be like, OK, Dulles organized a plan to kill President Kennedy. And it involved all these Wall Street forces mm -hmm. and all the rest. And he used these CIA people to do it. You know, mm -hmm. do that and clear the record. Well, it's not going to happen with these people because, right. you know, they're up to their necks in it. But it is interesting to me. And I'll go back to that Napolitano quote, because. What could be in there that would make Trump afraid to reveal those records? It would have to be something beyond just the, hey, the CIA participated in this, because right. everyone sort of knows that. Right. 
Um, so the UFO file comes up again, and then the director of national intelligence now, um, she's coming forward. We had James Woolsey, who was Clinton's mm-hmm. uh, former CIA director, and suddenly, you know what, Joseph, he wants to talk about UFOs too. Mm-hmm. And he has a story about his friend who got, you know, his plane got stuck because a UFO went by, you know. Mm-hmm. He's got all kinds of stuff. Um so, you know, we're obviously looking at a situation where all the intelligence people want to rush to the front. Mm-hmm. And what's amazing is in the case of Brennan, he's like, the government shouldn't withhold that. He was the CIA director. He knows right. the whole thing. He could easily right. let it out himself. Right. Um, so that's a completely uh, sort of, that's a facade going on there about we need transparency. So the question is, if they want to assign everything to the UFOs, as alien now they're finally willing to come out of the box and say we're under an alien threat uh the op there is on the threat side they also can operate with uh hey ai is here to save us from the evil aliens Mm -hmm. yeah they're they're setting things up so that they can play this or spin it any way they wish the only problem that they really have is if they really are dealing with E.T., E.T. may not like to go along with the narrative, whatever they choose. Uh, That's the big problem. Oh, yeah. Um, That, that to me, is why they're spinning the threat narrative, because, you know, way back years ago when we did the Bastard Secret Space Program conference, I pointed out that if you are the national security establishment in the late 40s, early 50s, and you're dealing with this UFO phenomenon, you either have to capitulate or you have to set up a program where you're going to emulate the performance characteristics of UFOs and demonstrate a capability. And this is the key part here. Demonstrate a capability to engineer systems on a planner, if not stellar scale. Right. Because if you can do that, then you're demonstrating that you've got a capability to make life awfully complicated for whoever it is that may be a threat to us. Okay. And and that's what I think is going on here. They they are ginning up the threat narrative so that they can roll out some of this stuff. They're ginning up the great reset social credit, you know, digital society, surveillance society, because they need the planet locked down to deal with whatever it is out there that they think they're dealing with. Or they're, or they're going to fake it. See, the fake narrative plays into that scenario just as easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if we fake an alien invasion, then we can, then we can get away with uh, you know, imposing global martial law and mm-hmm. a global surveillance system. So they're pushing this narrative because I think if you look back Daniel, I don't know if you're familiar with a, a document, a hoaxed document, incidentally, called Report from Iron Mountain. Yes. Have you ever read that? Yes. Well, in the Report for Iron Mountain, supposedly it's a group of, of you know, the global elite getting together to figure out how they can rule the world. What sort of, what sort of scheme can we come up with? And that, that report lists the environment, geophysical change, and E.T., Mm-hmm. Well, the the environment narrative seems to be pretty much fizzling. I mean, they keep trotting it out, but it never gets anywhere. Exactly. And that leaves basically geophysical change, which means you've you've got 
systems of the planetary scale that you can engineer that sort of stuff. Think Fukushima, think the convenient Haiti earthquake, you know, all sorts of stuff. Oh, yeah. Or the Indonesian tsunami, as Catherine Fitz has pointed out. Uh, and then you've got E.T. Mm -hmm. And here we are. <laughs> yeah, right. That's really interesting. We know there was a real report. Right. I always thought the Iron Mountain thing is strange because. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it does actually let out a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, but we know that the Brookings Institute looked at this in 62, 63 and said, oh, you know, we can't release any information. It would impact society badly right. if they knew about the whole ET thing. And we know they looked at it in the 80s under Reagan. Um, what's interesting to me is it seems like they got to a point with the technology on their end where they're comfortable um, saying that on their side that they could stage an incident. Right. And that right. gets into Von Braun's prediction, which I think is relevant. Yes. Um, because so far, the stages that he's talked about have all come true. Yep. In exactly the order. In exactly the order. Mm -hmm. And the final one was alien threat. Yeah. And that we need to weaponize space as a result of that. And then the caveat at the end was it's all a lie. Uh-huh. So um, that brings us back to the alien thing, because actual UFOs and the things that we've seen and the reports that we've had, you made a very interesting observation, which was that the UFOs themselves, if they're studying them, uh, don't exhibit a signature, a physics signature outside of this solar system. Right. Right. There's, there's, there's only one instance that i can think of where you have a physics signature that is suggestive of uh an interstellar capability and that's those strange uh space shuttle videos where you see these circular things kind of spinning and they pop into view and they slow and they've got a hole in the middle of them and right. a little and a little notch on the outside of the rim of the, yes. these things well they sort of pop in pop into view and to me, that's either a signature of something popping in from hyperspace, so to speak. Right. You know, all of the Hollywood uh, CGI. Yeah. Or it's a signature of a stealth technology that's being turned off. It's one of the two. Mm -hmm. So there's that one case I think things are open. But in no other case have I seen, you know, this is this is my problem with, with UFO reports. I look at the physics signatures. Are we seeing signatures sufficient, compulsive, and sufficient to indicate that these are traveling here from another star system? I'm sorry, I don't see it. Interesting. So, so if they're in this system... If they're in this system, right... Uh, this is interesting because where do you, th I mean, obviously there's lots of uh, UFO activity on Earth and mm -hmm. outside of Earth, but where in this system do you think that activity is coming from? Saturn. Saturn. Kronos. Why Saturn? Kronos, yeah. Gigantomachy. Yes. The War of the Gods. Norman, right. Norman Bergwin. Um, you know the ringmakers of Saturn and all of that stuff. You look at you look at uh, just the the moon of Saturn, Iapetus. You know, my question has always been, what did George Lucas know, and when did he know it? Yeah, right. Because you look at that, <laughs> you look at that moon, and it looks like the Death Star. 
It does. It, it, you know, there's no, there's no two ways about it. It does. It's remarkable. It is remarkable. And, it, you know, the odd thing is it's got those straight edges. If you look at those pictures, mm -hmm. it's not round. Right. <laughs> it's straight edges. What, are the, what is the problem here? Yeah. What's the problem there, folks? <laughs> you know, when was the last time you looked at a planet's limb and saw straight edges? <laughs> That's a problem. Um, you know, there's there's all sorts of strange stuff. There's that asteroid that Hoagland pointed out many years ago that the European Space Agency decided it wanted to go photograph, and it looks like a diamond. It looks like a magna-cut diamond. Yes. You know, on and on we could go. So it's it's coming from inside the system, and if you look at the anomalies of the planet and the moons of Saturn and compare those to the ancient texts, mm -hmm. you know, the, the whole Greek gigantomachy is started by Kronos. That's the name of Saturn in the Greek mythology. So what's going on here? I don't right. know. Interesting. Um, that is really fascinating. <laughs> I will say for Bergren's sake, when he did come out, uh, and talk about his book from the 80s, which is remarkable uh, that he had this information, he stuck completely to all the original details. And he said, well, they briefed President Reagan on that. Mm -hmm. So Reagan was hearing about gigantic ships mm -hmm. refueling there mm -hmm. in the rings of Saturn. Um, that would be enough for him to say, let's get Gorbachev at Reykjavik immediately. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's, let's talk to Mikhail right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, uh, I've got, I have a couple more questions for you, and then we're going to take questions sure. from everyone. How's it going out there? Great. I have too many questions already. <laughs> okay. Uh, we'll make sure to get you out of here on time, however. And uh, it's great to have Dr. Farrell with us. This uh, episode and us doing it live is, is great to have everyone here because the two videos that we did on Mars uh, <laughs> both got taken down unceremoniously. And uh, the explanation, as I said at the beginning of the program you're was... an impersonator daniel <laughs> <laughs> how dare you <laughs> impersonating a historical event event okay please let us know what it is <laughs> i'd like to know which one so we can stop offending the system yeah, so we can stop offending with our brazen impersonation <laughs> Um, and I do want to mention yeah. that that book you mentioned, uh, Sosters, Swastikas, and Psyops, that's your mm -hmm. book. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's a very interesting, I, I want to make mention of the fact that um, you have a series of books there from 2014, 2013, mm -hmm. 2015, which presage so much of the UFO stuff coming out. And it really is remarkable to go back and read those books because it's so much of the things that we're hearing about now and it's all laid in there. So you had incredible insights uh, going into this. Now, um, the thing I want to find out about where the national security state is at on this is if they're coming forward and doing their own UFO events in Washington, D.C., and the representatives are the Amazon guy and the director of national intelligence and Avi Loeb over here at Harvard, who I know you'd love to have coffee with sometime. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what stage are they at with this? If they're developing this threat narrative, they're still measuring, will it be accepted, let's say? Yeah. And uh, they've seen, they've got a lot of data from the lockdowns and everything else that suggest 
okay, here, here's points, pockets of resistance, here's things that we did that worked, and here are things that didn't work. But now the media every other day is promoting some, you know, that every, every commercial has an alien theme to it. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things I found really fascinating, and I mentioned it on the show last night, it's, it's an area of steganography I'm following, but I want your input on this. And it has to do with President Biden, and I use the term extremely loosely. I always um, put an asterisk behind President when I mention him. <laughs> Well, you do the Biden-Yanko, which I really like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's more like it. But, um, Joseph, he keeps talking about Satchel Paige. <laughs> and um, <laughs> Satchel Paige is, uh, you know, a uh, baseball player that was in the Negro League mm -hmm. in the 40s and had a great record. Mm -hmm. But um, his, him saying this is telegraphed all over the world because they're saying, oh, he – he misspoke. He used this word that's not used anymore and all the rest. Um, but when meeting with Francis, our good friend Francis, oh, uh, he wants to talk to him about Satchel Paige. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that bothered me about all that was that, um, you know, I looked into it and found out that there was this Mars rover named Spirit. And from 2006 to 2010, they had a number of discoveries. One of them was called the Baseball Diamond there and they started naming all the aspects out of members of that uh negro baseball league mm -hmm. so one of them uh in that list was satchel page mm -hmm. so uh, the points of connections in steganography here with him going around talking about satchel page with the pope would be we found ancient ruins on mars and now everybody in this kind of field has to get ready for it. They've been getting ready for it for a long time. The Pope himself made mention of Martians. Um, it seems like the Satchel Page reference is a setup again to this Mars piece. And you mm -hmm. pointed out that the Mars piece relates to ancient technology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the question is, how do you roll that narrative out? And are, is the aspect there then to change the human origin story and rearrange religion and spiritual beliefs on the planet. Well, I think that's part of it. Uh, they've, they've been trying to do that a long time. I got bad news for them. It's not going to work, but, um, <laughs> but I, I do think that's a part of it. I think, I think in terms of a stage that they're at now with this mm -hmm. is I do think they're prepping a narrative and I, I do think, and I, I totally agree with your observation that you made earlier that it looks to me like they're in the measurement stage. They're, they're still calibrating the social engineering aspects of this to see how many people are going to pick up on it and go with it. There's a big problem that they have, and that is my impression is that they are not convincing uh, a certain segment of, of the ufology community with all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. I think there's too many people that, that have woken up that are looking at uh, everything the government does with a suspicion that, that it's some sort of manipulation. Right. So where, where they're going to go with it, I don't know. I don't think in one respect that they're ever going to come clean, and that's the archaeological warfare aspect of the story. Right. Um, that, that would require 
admitting too much about what they're up to, which I do think they're up to that, that they are, they are looking for that ancient technology. Absolutely. Um, and they want to get their hands on it. That there's behind my way of viewing it, Daniel, is behind all this narrative about taking Dixie cups and going and scooping up asteroids and all of this stuff. They're telling us that they're looking for something and they're going to do it under the guise of commercial.